Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. I have the privilege this morning of introducing to you, to someone who's not a stranger here at LifePoint, uh, but Dr. John Mark Yates serves as Vice President and Professor of Church History at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Spurgeon College. He earned his PhD in Church History from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and also holds degrees from Southern Seminary, Oxford University, and Criswell College. He has authored three books and and contributed articles to multiple journals as well as the Encyclopedia of Christian Civilization. John Mark is married to Angie, and they have four children, Briley, Sean, Katie, and Jackson. Dr. Yates is no stranger to LifePoint as he preached for our Orphan Care Sunday a year ago. And Pastor Lane is very excited for you to hear from Dr. Yates this morning to be encouraged and challenged from the Word of God. LifePoint, please give a warm welcome to Dr. John Mark Yates. Good morning. I'm glad they found the old picture without the beard. You know, it's uh, all those things. I'm so glad to be back with you guys. I'm so glad to be able to share in the Word of God with you. I have the privilege of being with you for the next four weeks, where we are going to embark on a series called Letters in Exile. Letters in Exile. We're going to look at the book of Ezekiel. And while Ezekiel is a very large book in the Old Testament, what I want us to be able to see are four key themes that arise out of the text of Scripture that I think matter so much for us today. Today, we're going to be opening our Bible to Ezekiel chapter 1. So if you have your copy of God's Word in print or electronic format, if you would grab that, you're going to want it. What we're going to do is we're actually going to look at an entire chapter at what God is saying to us of Ezekiel chapter 1. Next Sunday, if you want to work a little bit ahead, we'll be looking at Ezekiel chapter 8 ties to the theme of uh, this week's, where we'll be talking about a question about who do you worship. One of the things that Ezekiel is doing is he is helping people, his people, who are dealing with major life questions after the absolute collapse of everything that they've known, their economy, their country, their everything. And in fact, Ezekiel has been taken, we'll talk a little bit about this, to an an entirely different country that he doesn't even know anything about. And it's from there that he spends uh, some 20 years ministering to the people of Israel. And as he does this, he is helping them deal with these questions. So our our first one that we'll look at today is the question of, uh, of who's greater? Who's greater? If, if there's a power that can come and collapse everything in my culture and society and everything, who is greater? And we'll be answering that question today. Next week, we'll look at who do we worship? Uh, why, why does this matter? Even in the midst of all of this, does it matter who I worship? The, the next week after that, we'll talk about who's to blame. Who's to blame? And in the midst of a lot of difficult circumstances, one of the first things we try to do as humans is blame somebody else. And so Ezekiel helps answer that question. And we'll talk about that in week three. In our final session, together we'll talk about is there hope 
Uh, and the question, is there ever any hope? And we'll, we'll see how God's word answers that question. So I am so excited to be with you and to be able to uh, journey with you a little bit through the book of Ezekiel. Well, as I hinted at, today we're going to be asking the question of who is greater? Now, this is a perennial question, right? So we could ask the question, who's the GOAT, right? The greatest of all time. And we just finished the NBA playoffs. My son was totally enraptured with that and, and, and watching Golden State and, and Steph Curry. And, and he, we finished up the final games. He's like, Dad, Steph Curry is the greatest of all time. He just is the greatest of all time. And I said, I'd like to introduce you, son, to a guy by the name of Michael Jordan. You know, there's, there's a whole other thing. And, and then you know the, the debate between Jordan and LeBron. And, and he's like, Dad, no, you got to see all these stats. And so he goes through and he talks about Curry's stats. And he's like, I think he's, he's got to be at least one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time. Don't we do this though? I mean, it's like the, the Chiefs versus really anyone else, you know, the, who's the greatest. And, and maybe it's Royals versus Cardinals, or, or maybe it's Jeep Wranglers versus Broncos, or maybe it's something else. We, we do this where we try to pit who is the best. And we're pretty confident that the team we side with is the best. Our team wins. Our team's the strongest. Our team's the best. And if we find a weakness, we are pretty quick to try to cover up over that weakness so that our team still is the one that wins. We did this on the schoolyard too, right? You remember that? Or maybe you've heard kids do it where it's like, my dad's stronger or my dad's richer or my dad does this or my mom does that. And, and, and we play this game back and forth of who is the greatest? What would happen though if you actually did come face-to-face -face with legitimately the greatest? What would happen if in your life, uh, maybe even this morning, if the heavens were to open and God showed us just a glimpse of his greatness, the, the creator of the universe giving us just a snapshot into the glories of who he is? We're going to see that in the text today, and I want you to connect with this and to hopefully uh, make sure that you understand this. Now, let me give you a couple of context before we jump in, and what we'll do is we'll kind of walk through this text so that you can see it, and then we'll make some application to take with us to, to understand what's going on. Now, first of all, to understand Ezekiel, uh, how many of you have ever heard a sermon series in Ezekiel in all of your times at church? Only a couple of you. Right, there's a good reason for this, right? If you, in your private Bible reading time, have ever read in the book of Ezekiel, uh, there are some places that can be pretty amazing, uh, pretty fantastic. We're actually going to see that today uh, in the text. And, and in fact, even in Jesus' day, when Jesus was alive, leaders of the Jewish uh, religious groups that were there said you shouldn't really study Ezekiel until you were at least 30 uh, and had some Bible under your belt. That was kind of their thinking uh, about what you should kind of be careful about the book of Ezekiel. Part of it has to do with its what's known as apocalyptic literature, uh, and it deals with kind of what God is going to do at the end, kind of like the book of Revelation. Uh, and also, it's dealing with these prophecies about other countries and other things that are dealing with the people of Israel. So you sometimes have to have a little bit of historical knowledge and some other pieces to uh, understand this. The other context I want us to understand is just Ezekiel himself. If you have your text open, uh, let's look at the first few verses here. In the 
30th year in the fourth month on the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. That's Ezekiel referring to this. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. That's an awful lot of dates and other kinds of things, but let me try to help contextualize this for you. Around the year 597 or 598 before Christ, so almost 600 years before Jesus was born, the people of Israel had perpetuated the rebellion against God. God sent judgment on the house of Israel, and as a consequence, their nation was destroyed. This invading army from Babylon came And one of the first things that they did once they got control of the country is they took all of the promising young men who had strong education backgrounds, who had other kinds of things, and they took them and they removed them from the land and brought them over to Babylon. That's an intentional thing. It's a form of brain drain, right, that we would see happening in different countries, usually for economic reasons. But this was to destabilize the future of the people of Israel, because the idea and the thought was, if we can get these young men incorporated into our culture in Babylon, they would abandon their God, because it's pretty obvious that our gods are stronger. Our gods beat their God because their country was destroyed. So I'm going to take all of these people over into this area. This is probably the same group where we see the book of Daniel, right? Remember Daniel being taken and uh, taken to Babylon and uh, in the, the whole issue with the lion's den, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the whole thing with the, the fiery furnace. We, we see all of that. More than likely, Ezekiel was part of that same group. Ezekiel was in a different part of Babylon, but nevertheless, the same kind of total destabilization of anything and everything that he knew and understood. And so here he is, the son of a priest. So he was, as a son of a priest, he was part of those who were to minister to the people of God. But now the The temple is in shambles. There's all kinds of crazy going on. And how is he supposed to minister to the people of God? So here he is on the banks of this river. They are reflecting on all of this. And he has a vision of God. This is what we're going to see in this text today is this vision. This snapshot of the Almighty that he begins to see. And he tries to relate to his people. Now, as we read this text and as we look through all of this, if you're going to take notes today, there's just one main point in this entire text. There's one main point is that God is greater. God is greater. He is the greatest. In fact, God is greater than anything that you could ever hope, imagine, dream, or go beyond. God is the greatest of all. So let's dive into the text. Our first section that we're going to see that is Ezekiel has this vision where God reveals himself to him. He begins to see something that is absolutely incredible in the throne room of God. Look at verse 4. As I looked, 
Behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had, the fa- they had a human likeness, but each had four faces. Each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. And upon their wings and on their four sides, they had human hands. And on the four, they had their faces and their wings And their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies And each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures and their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearances of flashes of lightning. You got the mental picture? This is an amazing thing that as Ezekiel gets this glimpse and and the, the heavens open, God allows him to be able to see this. Let me point out some things for you that hopefully will help make a little bit of sense of this. So when we see in verse four, he says, I behold, a stormy wind came out of the north. This idea of a whirlwind or a strong wind conveying God is a a consistent image in scripture. In fact, we could go to Isaiah 29. We could go visit Jeremiah 23. We could go to Job 28, 2 Kings 2. All these texts and, and even more all see and reveal God is inhabiting a wind. And the idea is that of, of God bringing judgment on a storm. That there's this connection between the wind and the power of God and, and who he is. Maybe you could even think of it in terms of the pillar of smoke or the cloud of fire that led the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. God is always seen or portrayed in this particular way. So that's kind of a a first sign that we begin to see that this is tied to who God is. Ezekiel gets that part, right? This wind, not hard to conceptualize, not hard. But verse 5 from the midst of it, so from this, all this flashing around and, and, and metal, you get this idea where he says the likeness of four living creatures. And then that word likeness or like is used excessively <laughs> in the rest of this text. Why? Because he has no words. Have you ever seen or experienced something that when you tried to describe it to someone else, words failed? My family, a couple years ago, we went to Yellowstone National Park. It's amazing, amazing, this unique component of our country. There are pools that have water that is a blue like I have never seen before. But around the blue were rims of orange. 
And in certain areas, it almost had a rainbow effect. It was like, and that's all I can do to try to describe it, right? Now, I could put up a picture, and you might gain a piece of this. But it's still, if I'm using my words to describe this to you, I have to use this attempt at similitude, right? Like, like, like. This is what Ezekiel is doing. He's saying, um, so, reader, I don't know exactly how to say this, so I'm going to try. And so here's what I've got. And I've got this likeness of four living creatures, right? So there are these four guys and they're coming down and they've got wings and, and hands, but their feet look like calf feet. And they've got four faces, but it's just one head, like, 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 right? So this is a whole thing that he's trying to do to help us capture. You could go to the book of Revelation, the very last book of the New Testament, where we see the throne room of God. And John, the apostle, as he's writing about what he's seeing in heaven, does the exact same thing. Why? Because it is so big, it is so boggling of the mind, there's no way that our human minds can conceptualize. This is what we should be getting out of this more than even just some of the details is that it is so incredibly, overwhelmingly amazing that Ezekiel can hardly get his mind around it. We could go into some of the pieces like the four faces, right? You've got that of a human, that of an eagle, that of an ox, that of a lion. All of these things were uh, in that day and time symbols of royalty and, and majesty. The idea that it moved quickly. Did you notice it like flashed like lightning? So I guess Ezekiel seeing it like here, and then it's over there, and then it's over there, and it just, it's just moving, and it's just moving, and it's so bright too when it moves from one place to another that it's, it's like seeing lightning in a storm. What we're going to find as this text goes on that this is just the base of a throne. How frequently do we think about the base of something, right? Like you guys come to church here regularly and here's this uh, communion table, something that symbolizes to us our union in Christ and, and the way that we love one another and because of the, the love of Christ. How many of you have paid attention to the, the curled feet at the base of the table that are carved? We just, we just don't pay attention to the details like this. When Ezekiel is reflecting on this, this is the base of the throne, and it's so amazing, he's like, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. It's, it's blowing him away, and it's just the base. That's how great God is, that the throne he inhabits conveys this amount of beauty. But let's go on, because the, the text actually unpacks this a little bit more. Verse 15, now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. So if we've got those four creatures, and kind of the picture would be that one of the creatures is facing this way, one of them is facing this way, one facing this way, one facing that way. They've got wings, and they're, they're standing in such a way that their wings are touching one another, if you've done a study of uh, uh, maybe the Ark of the Covenant and uh, the way that it was built and how the wings of the cherubim connected over the mercy seat uh, of the throne of God, it's kind of a, a sort of a picture of that. 
And now we've got these four creatures, and now there's a wheel beside each and every one of them. Verse 16, as for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. So maybe think like a gyroscope kind of thing, pictured next to each of the creatures, this wheel thing that's, that's, that's right there. Verse 18, and their rims were tall and awesome. So I guess they're like rolling 24s something. I don't know. Uh, Anyway, uh, their rims on all four were full of eyes all around. So there's a whole other aspect here. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. And whenever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them. And the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood, and when they rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So somehow there's this connectivity between these creatures and the wheels so that they're all interconnected in what's going on. Verse 22, and over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads and under their expanse, their wings were stretched out straight one towards one another. And each creature had two wings covering his body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. If you thought the first section was crazy, now we have wheels within wheels, right? This is kind of nuts when we start thinking about this, that as he's trying to describe this. But notice where he says the setting is, as he's looking at all this. He says, it's like a vast expanse. Friends, I believe that as you look at this, what Ezekiel is trying to describe for us is is really the setting of the universe. If you've ever watched one of those amazing science shows where they're talking about the vast expanse of the universe, of galaxy upon galaxy, all clustered in the heavens and, and even beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And here are these creatures and just the backdrop of everything is the galaxy and all of the wonders of the galaxy itself, all revealed out right in front of them. God, the creator, wraps his throne room in the glories of creation. One of the things that we can get lost in our own time and our own space is that we kind of begin to minimize who God is into our own context. And we forget that he is king of the universe. So much so that he chooses to decorate his throne room with the things that he's created. The, the walls of his throne room are just simply the, wall, the, the framing of the universe. Think about how vast that is. How incredible God must be for that to even be the case. This is the same God who said, let there be, and it existed. And so he has decorated his throne room with the stars in the sky. And this is what Ezekiel is being able to see. And on top of that, he says, it's 
loud. That every time one of the angels or creatures move, they flap their wings and he says it's like a shout from an army. It's, it's like a huge waterfall. It's a loud roar. And you can't get away from the power that's on display when these creatures move. There was an old spiritual that was sung by slaves, oppressed slaves in the United States. They were used this song to in, encourage one another to press on. Maybe you've Heard it before that Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air, right? This old spiritual song was a means to help those who were oppressed to encourage each other to say, hey, I don't care how bad it is. I don't care what difficulty you found, but God is still on his throne. God is still in control. God is still reigning from the heavens, even though we may not feel like it, even though we may not see it in a way that we thought, that he sees our troubles and we can press on. So now we've seen the base of the throne. We've seen the throne itself. It should matter to us who sits on that throne. Who's the one who's on the throne reigning, right? If we've seen all of these things and, and it's so unbelievably majestic and, and so incredibly beautiful, who sits on the throne? Well, this is where we turn to in verse 26. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire and seated above like, uh, like the likeness of a throne was a likeness within a human appearance. And upward, from, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal. So from the waist up, it had this bright metal appearance and the appearance of fire enclosed it all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw what it were the appearance of fire. And there was a brightness all around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain so that the appearance of brightness all around. Ezekiel says, I saw... This person who looked like a man, and it was fire and gleaming metal and wrapped in a prism of lights. This is unbelievable, and we seize this. Now we know, according to Scripture, no one has seen God and lived. We know that this isn't God himself. It's, in the text, it's, it's God's glory. We see this in the, as the verse continues, verse 28. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Ezekiel is saying, hey, I don't, I don't even think... It was just the glory of God. I think it was the likeness of the glory of God. But friends, when you start studying this uh, even more, what we see here and what many commentators believe throughout uh, all of church history is that this is a picture of Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus on the throne. This is a picture of Jesus. Now, Jesus hasn't been born. He's not become the God-man yet. But this is a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ that we're seeing right here in the text. Why would we say this? Well, in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1, verse 3, the author writes this. Listen to this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of, of the majesty on high. 
We see the glory of God here, the likeness of the glory of God, which is exactly how the author of Hebrews reflects on who Jesus is. Ezekiel saw the sustaining Savior of the world. So what does Ezekiel do? Did you catch this? Did you read ahead? What does Ezekiel do? Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Ezekiel falls flat on his face in worship. He's seeing something so incredible, something beyond anything that you and I could ever comprehend. And he falls flat on his face in worship. At the end of chapter 3, you can kind of read ahead, uh, maybe later today, at the end of chapter 3, Ezekiel, when he finishes his vision, which is contained in 1, 2, and the first part of chapter 3, he actually sits for seven days straight and says nothing to anyone because he is so blown away by the majesty of God that he cannot even comprehend and speak. There is no doubt in his mind. There is no one greater than the almighty king. It changes his life. It changes his life forever. For some of you, that's exactly what happened in your life. That time that you came face to face with God. Maybe it was at VBS. Maybe it was as a young adult at youth camp. Maybe it was even as an adult and you heard the good news of Jesus Christ that that Jesus died for you and died for your sins and, and you gave up on pursuing your life and surrendered your life to God. And when you did that, you experienced salvation in such a way that it had a radical transforming effect on your life. Like Paul seeing Jesus on the way to Damascus, it changed his life forever. For some of you, it moved you from addiction to substances to freedom. For some of you, it changed your trajectory to where you understood your purpose and calling in life. For some of you, it freed you from all kinds of things that had been binding you and and holding you down. When Jesus saves, he saves to the uttermost and it deserves our worship. And so what Ezekiel is doing is experiencing God like never before. He was changed as a result of his encounter with God. In light of this, I'd like us to consider four things in light of this passage that are for us when we kind of process this radical experience with the glory of God, the one who is greater than all things. The first thing that I love for us to connect with is that Jesus is the sovereign king. Jesus is the sovereign king. There is no doubt that Ezekiel, as one who had lost his homeland, as one who had lost everything that he had ever hoped for or dreamed for, humanly speaking, the one who had been separated from his family, the one who had been cut off from everything that he had known growing up, he felt isolated, felt alone, felt a great sense of loss, but God was there. Throughout the pages of church history, we see this over and over again where the people of God who remain faithful eventually run into a culture that says, we'll have none of that, and they send them packing, and they lose everything for following Jesus. In fact, Jesus told us that those of us who are followers of him would experience difficult days. We would experience hard challenges. Friends, in the midst of our destabilized culture in America, we've experienced 
the craziness of COVID, right? Our economy's crazy right now. The elections, the last few have been just nuts. But where is our hope? Is it in the next election? Is it in the next thing that we can sort of control? Is it the next piece? Or is our hope eternally in Jesus Christ and our sovereign King on the throne? What would happen if tomorrow we awoke and somehow our country had completely gone belly up and there was no more America? Would that devastate us? I'm sure it would on some level, but would it totally rock our world to where we abandoned everything that we believed in? I would hope not because there is none greater than our God. From the outset of this book, this is why Ezekiel, the Lord gives Ezekiel this vision to help him understand, look Ezekiel, even in the midst of the collapse of everything that you've known, I am still on my throne. And for some of you, maybe it was that conversation with your boss last week where you realized, I may be on my last leg. Or that conversation with your doctor two weeks ago where you heard news that kind of rocked your world. Maybe it was the loss of a child a few months back. Friends, God is still on his throne. No matter what we experience humanly that rocks our world, may we be those with an unshakable faith that Jesus is Lord. He reigns on his throne. And while we may not see the purpose at this moment, friends, he is still king. Jesus is the sovereign king. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus is holy. If you've been around church at all for any amount of time, you understand that holy equals separate or set apart. In his perfection, God is holy. We are imperfect. We are sinful. God is perfect. Notice the separation even in this text between Ezekiel and the whole of the throne, yet he can observe all of the things that are going on. This is the mighty king of kings who is here. Holiness causes us to bow in worship, to understand our, our place in relation to all of this. We come and we bow at his foot of his throne because he is holy. Yet this holiness also calls out to us. In 2 Peter, we're told to be holy, to be set apart just as God is holy. So for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, that demands of us a different way of living our life. It demands of us a way that we calculate all that we're doing carefully to make sure that we're reflecting the glory of God. We are those who always have hope because our Savior is King. Jesus is holy. You may be sitting here and you go, well, this is where I have no hope. You don't know the things I've done. People in this room would be so embarrassed if they knew how bad my life is. But friends, that's why we rejoice in the hope of the gospel. Because every single one of us has no hope outside of Jesus. None of us can do good enough. None of us can, can help enough people. None of us can give enough money away. None of us can do anything to merit God's favor. The only way for us to have salvation is to surrender our hearts and our lives to the Savior who loves and who reigns on the throne and to say, I am no longer my own, I am his. And in that we experience our salvation. The only way for us to have hope is through Jesus it's because 
of Jesus' shed blood on the cross, that when God looks at us as sinful humans, He doesn't see our sin. He sees the holiness of Jesus. Friends, that's where our hope lies. Jesus is holy. The third thing I want you to understand is that God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming. One of the things that Ezekiel will state over and over and over again in this book is that God's judgment is coming. Here is the Holy One on His throne. Watch out. God's judgment is coming. Listen to Jesus' own words in Matthew 24. He said, watch that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed because these things will take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. Friends, I don't care how chaotic our world gets. It's just the beginning of labor pains till Jesus comes back. Jesus will go on in this text in Matthew 24 to tell them, no one, know, no one ever knows the final day, but we can be sure of this. We're closer today than we were yesterday. The end is coming. Will your sins be covered by the blood of Christ or will you be left guilty? Guilty. Guilty standing before the throne of God. The fourth thing I want you to see is that worship is always the right response. When Ezekiel falls flat on his face, he is doing so in a way that we see in the Bible over and over again. As people come face to face with God's glory, it just leaves them breathless. It's in this moment of Ezekiel falling flat that he hears the voice of God speaking to him. I wonder how many of us came into this room this morning and we're doing what we know we're supposed to do. We're here at church, but it's been a long time since we've heard from God. Our, our hearts are dry. Our spirits are dry. And it's just been a long time. Could it be that the very fact that you can't hear from God in this time is because you're failing in this area of worship? You've forgotten that God is greater. You've forgotten to reflect your heart and your life and your being to the most holy and perfect God. You've forgotten to worship. And instead, when the cares of life come rushing in at you, instead of surrendering afresh to the Lord, you try to handle it on your own. And you've forgotten what it is to worship the Savior. Worship isn't just singing songs, although how incredible is it to be reminded of how great our God is and how incredible he is when we come together as the people of God and lift our voices. But friends, it's, it's every single day. How do we orient our life in worship to the king? How do we orient our life so that we reflect exactly what Ezekiel saw here in this text, that there is no one greater than God? Is this you? There's no accolade, no tribute, nothing that we could ever say to match God's glory. Even as Ezekiel stumbles over his words, we get at least a sliver, a sliver, a small picture 
of understanding who God is and all of his glory. And friends, according to the word of God, that same glorious God is here in his spirit. That same glorious God loves and cares for you in the midst of your challenges, in the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of where you are. That same glorious God sent his son to die for your sin. Will you not worship the greatest of all?